Gina mentioned last night, we're, this week, we're going to be um, offering the teachings around the Four Noble Truths progressively unfolding. So this is like um, the Four Noble Truths, the series, Star Trek, the series, the Four Noble Truths. Um, and they are interdependent. They don't stand alone. So um, hopefully you'll see how they are woven together and how they are related. I, whenever I talk about the Four Noble Truths, I love to open with this, um, I think, beautiful quote by Gloria Steinem, in which she says, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> and really to explore where the edges of your practice are when these truths come into our lives. And they may be difficult truths at times in our, in our practice. Um, and they also may be uh, uh, freeing truths in our practice. But they are also noble truths. And, and I also want to um, offer that they are not just noble, that they are really bold truths in the way that they state how things are. They are really very revealing truths in the sense that they, that there is a progressive layering and un, um, revealing of more and more um, uh, of the teachings of, of this path towards freedom. That they are very radical truths because it's really, they really invite us to go upstream from our cultural and social conditioning. And they are really beautiful truths, beautiful in the, in the way that I use that word of, of wholesome, of, of, of encouraging us to live our lives with a clear mind and open heart and that they are timeless truths, that they are relevant as they were in the Buddha's time, as they are in our time. And that they are inspiring, which can be a foundation for us when our practice becomes challenging at times. And we see each of these noble truths, whenever we go into practice, whenever we go into retreat, we follow the Buddha's footsteps on his path towards the Bodhi tree. And we begin to explore what is really this path towards freedom? What will really lead to happiness? And even before the Buddha had the determination to sit underneath that Bodhi tree. And even before we decided to create these conditions in our life to come into retreat, there were signals both to him in his life and us in our lives 
about how to live our spiritual lives more deeply. For the Buddha, it was that fateful day when he was, it was said that he was around 29 years old, and he had been protected all of his life by his family and his father, the king and the queen, and given every material abundance and pleasure in these palaces. And he happened to go out of the palaces, and he met, he saw for the first time um, uh, a person who was sick, a person who was old and elderly. And he also saw a person who had died, which revealed to him, regardless of how much he had been protected, regardless of how much, how many pleasures he had received in his life, that there was this reality that he could not escape from, that there was sickness, that there was aging and death in this life. And that the fourth person he saw was a wandering spiritual renunciate in robes, revealing to him that a different path was possible. Mythologically, these messengers are said to be gods in disguise who were sent from the highest heaven to awaken the Buddha to be to his purpose in this life. And in our own lives, in our own ways, each of us pass through a similar path of realization. Each of us has had a sense of how the world defines what happiness is. Isn't always satisfying to us. This is how we begin to actually live the Buddha's life. The story of the Buddha's life and his awakening is not just about his life. It is about our life and our life in 21st century North America. So through the cumulative experience of your life, we already have measures of insight that there is another way to live beyond the conditioning of the materialism, the competition, and the violence in our larger world. So when the Buddha had his awakening underneath the Bodhi tree, he actually sat and meditated and walked and meditated for two months before he decided to share his teachings. It was said that he saw how deep the teachings were, how subtle the teachings were, how difficult to perceive, how difficult to comprehend, and how they weren't in the sphere of logic, this path towards the end of suffering. And he was actually inclined not to teach at first. And then another heavenly messenger came down from the heavens, appealing to the Buddha to survey the world with his omniscient Buddha vision of wisdom and compassion. And when the Buddha did so, 
he saw that indeed there were beings with little dust in their eyes who had wholesome qualities in their hearts and who could be taught this Dhamma, this, these teachings that could lead to freedom and a, an abiding peace. Everything that the Buddha offered in his teachings was measured, considered, mindful, and succinct. This means he carefully chose what he decided to teach first. And out of the range of his infinite wisdom, he chose the teachings of the Four Noble Truths to offer first. And within this set of teachings are all of his teachings. I've often heard Gina use the word holographic when she describes the teachings of the Buddha. That, that when we go through any one of the teachings, we see all of them. So the, the name of the sutra that, that um, the Four Noble Truths are offered is called Dhamma Chaka Kappa Vatana. Dhamma meaning wisdom or the truth. Chaka meaning the wheel. And Pavatana meaning turning or setting in motion. So the, the actual um, translation of, of the name of the sutta is the turning of the wheel of wisdom. That there is this first truth, which is that there is dukkha in this life. Dukkha we normally translate as suffering, but that actually is not precisely accurate. Dukkha actually is a range of experiences that includes dissatisfaction, discontent, discomfort, frustration, sorrow, imperfection, stress. These are all words pointing towards the, the encompassing nature of this, this Pali word dukkha. So it's not just this, this um, narrow definition of suffering that we often use. The metaphor or the image that's often offered about dukkha is that it's like um, a square axle that's been placed into the round hub of a wheel. And it's constantly grinding against each itself. Sometimes the sensations are not so acute and sometimes they're quite severe. But there's always this stressful um, aspect to the experience. The second noble truth is that this dukkha has a cause and the cause is clinging or attachment. And just as that there is a cause to suffering, the third noble truth states that there's a cessation. There is an end to suffering. And the ending of the suffering is the fourth noble truth, which is the Eightfold Path. 
So first to say that the Four Noble Truths, to me at least, is not about suffering. What they are about are about freedom. And as we explore this progressively in this week, you're really invited to ground these teachings into your own experience, not just from an intellectual understanding. And you may even have the feeling already of living into these teachings without even having heard the Dharma talks yet. So here we are in this, this beautiful environment. The weather has been so perfect. Um, just the right amounts of sun and heat, of wind and humidity. We have this incredible staff of cooks that have been offering us these beautiful meals. The creme caramel is today. <laughs> I could have had a lot of clinging about. <laughs> Devoted managers that have supported this retreat, not just this year, but so many years in the past. The support of a diverse, compassionate teaching team, these priceless teachings that have come to us from generations of practitioners and teachers. And as we sit, are we completely at peace? Is the mind calm and tranquil? Can we be with the breath or the body or loving kindness in this very moment? Or is the mind often running? Or is there agitation or discomfort in the body? What is all that about? What is happening? What is happening is the direct experience of the first noble truth. That there is this um, discomfort in our lives. So, I don't know if you've tried this at home. You can even go up to you know, the room M101, which is a beautiful sitting room. It has these you know, plush sofas and chairs. And, Find yourself the most comfortable chair in the most comfortable place in that room and offer yourself a sitting meditation. And I think that whether it's in that room or in the most comfortable place in your home where you feel safe, eventually you will feel discomfort. Eventually you will feel agitated. This is the underlying experience of the first noble truth. And can we simply be with that and explore it to see what its true nature is. One of the distinctions that's helpful in this exploration is, again, language is, is um, can be confusing and problematic. 
But there's a distinction between what is meant by dukkha and the usual word of suffering that's associated with it and pain, which normally um, refers to a lot of unpleasant experiences in our life. So the suffering that is relieved, that the teachings offer relief from, is this internal suffering that we overlay on all of our experience. That this internal suffering is different than the the conditions of the external world that often causes us pain. That pain can come from illness, aging, death. It also can come from conflict, loss, abuse, trauma, even the more difficult um, tragedies of the world like war. These teachings do not say that it is possible to live free from the pain of those external conditions. There are 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows in each of our lives. There is no life that does not have these 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, even though we would so much like our lives to just be the 10,000 joys. But these teachings do say that with the painful and unpleasant experience in our life, that it is possible not to add any more suffering to this experience. That there's a way in which the mind can feed the pain of external circumstances and actually make our, our suffering worse. This is the piece that is optional, that the teachings help us reveal. So whether it's a physical state or a mental state, depending upon our mind state, we can actually make things worse. So we can think about it as, has anyone ever gotten angry at their anger? Is there, any, is there a way that you can feel that you can, can put gasoline on the fire? So we can see this you know, as, we, as we do our sitting practice. As we meditate, we can you know, sometimes feel the frustration of the mind just going off and the invitations of just being with what is and not even judging the distracted mind. But we get frustrated. We get frustrated with the thoughts and the judgments that come into our consciousness. And then we start judging the judgments, right? We start uh, describing ourselves as a, as that we can't do this, or that we're a bad meditator, or that the practice is really stupid, or, and all of a sudden, we go into self-judgment. And we can, we can get into the spiral 
uh, whether it's sliding into depression or being depressed at the depression, we can go into this hell realm called despair. This is the extra serving of suffering that the Buddha said that we did not need to have. Often, the most painful thing about pain is the concept of pain. The word pain is not the living experiences of the sensations that are arising. So I think there was a gentleman in the back that was talking about working with pain this morning. What are the sensations that underlie the languaging of this word pain? In, this, in the retreat, in your sitting, you can feel strong sensations that arise either in the knee or the body. And we can quickly add to that experience by wanting it to go away. It's sort of meeting energy with energy and that, that it can make the pain even worse. Judging our bodies to be inadequate, that we'll never get it right. Mindfulness is simply meeting the moment for what it is. Exploring it with compassion. Exploring the physical sensations and if you need to back off, using that practice of compassion to just backing off so that so that the sensations don't overwhelm you. My partner has um, a very severe arthritic condition in his, in his left hip. And so whenever, this, whenever he says, I'm in pain, I ask him sort of progressively, incrementally, to, for him to describe what the pain is or what the experience is. Because as we know that there are... That, that pain is, um, is, is an umbrella term that actually does not reveal what is going on in the moment. And so as he begins to describe the sensations, sometimes he says, oh, well, you know, actually that's not that painful. It just happens to be a strong sensation. Sometimes when I ask him, the question itself is overwhelming. It just, it, it, because there is so much strong sensation, it makes the focus on those strong sensations even more painful. So it's this dance of how we do it with our own experience, exploring it, but also backing off if the exploration is, is too intense. Most of the time, we're not living into this first noble truth. We can hear the words and we can understand them, but we are conditioned to be reactive to pleasant and unpleasant experiences so that when unpleasant experiences come up, we automatically push them away. If pleasant experiences come into our, our um, experience, we want more of them. And for those things that are in the middle, that are relatively neutral, we kind of ignore them. 
our mindfulness practice is asking us to live, is inviting us to live our whole life, to meet with this gentle kindness, all of the pleasant, unpleasant, the joys and the sorrows of our whole life. With each of these four noble truths, the Buddha actually described three sets of insights. These insights are that the, the template you'll see is true for, for each of the four. The first insight is simply recognizing the truth. So for the first noble truth, it's just recognizing that there's suffering. And um, I recently had the situation in which um, I actually was aware of not being aware of the suffering. So what happened was um, I skinned my knee. I fell down twice on the same part of my knee. And, you know, it's sort of, it, it wasn't a major injury, but it, w it looked a lot worse than it did. And I felt like a five-year-old, you know, when it comes from running home and <laughs> not, and, um, and when you put the Band-Aid on, it sticks and, you know, there's this whole process of peeling it off. And so, um, so of course, I had to take a shower. And um, I take a shower, I have taken a shower all of my life, and I go through and wash the body in a certain way. It's, I hadn't realized this until this incident, but I just have a pattern of, of going through the different parts of my body in a sequence. Except when I stepped into the shower with this injury, the water made it sting and the, and the sensations were really strong in that moment. So I attended to it, I washed it. You know, as, as the water goes over it, it, the sensations begin to subside and they're tolerable. And so I went on, shampooed my hair, went, went through the body didn't give the, any thought to the fact that I had already washed this knee, so I started washing it again. And it was just as painful as the first time. So in that split second, I had already forgotten what that suffering was like. So recognizing suffering is an important aspect of being able to go through it. The second insight is by sustaining your awareness on the experience of the truth, in this case, the first noble truth of suffering, we penetrate it. We penetrate the true nature of it. And the third insight into each of these noble truths is having penetrated we actually go through the experience and see the other side. So as we sit with discomfort in our meditation practice, it is such a worthwhile practice to sit with discomfort in the body because we be able, be, are able to recognize it, see it for what it is, and actually penetrate it to go to the other side. The practice that I offer, and you've heard me offer this in past years if you've been here before, 
is the practice of the itch. (laughs) Recognizing the itch is not going to kill you. It is uncomfortable. And what do we usually do with an itch when it arises? We make it go away. We scratch it. And so what is it like to sustain your awareness through those uncomfortable sensations? You know that an hour from now, you're not going to have the itch. So what is that experience, watching the itch arise, sustaining your awareness through it, penetrating what that nature of that itch is, and getting to the other side? If you scratch, you will never see the other side. And this is not about a practice of staying with each itch in your life. But in your life, how many itches do you just get rid of? How many cravings, how many uh, desires do you have that you don't actually live through? that you just feed in order to get rid of the uncomfortable sensations. This is a template of how to explore our life. So sitting with discomfort in the body is such a worthwhile practice. When I was practicing in Thailand, um, we did not have these cushy little zabutans and, and zafus. Um, there were cement platforms and a, what they call a sitting cloth, which was a piece of fabric. And the Dharma talks were about three or four hours long. And I don't understand Thai. <laughs> and it was such a worthwhile practice to be able to sustain the attention through that experience. So I'm trained as a social worker, and um, those of you who are in the helping professions, I think can relate to that, that you know, in the helping professions, we actually respond to pain in the world. And often, Again, that conditioned response of wanting the pain to go away without sustaining our awareness through it, how often have we gone to fix something and actually made it worse? Because we haven't penetrated into the situation and really understood what was needed. This is why the practice is so relevant not just for our personal freedom, but for our collective freedom and how we benefit the world. Ajahn Lee Damodaro, who was one of the Thai meditation masters of the last century, said, when people are out in the sun, when, when people out in the sun keep running around, they don't realize how hot the sun really is. If you want to know how hot it is, 
that is the true nature of things. You have to sit out in the middle of the field where the sun is really strong for about five minutes. It is the same with pain or stress. So he's talking about dukkha. If the mind goes running around without stopping, it doesn't really see the pain and stress. It has to be still if it wants to see. So as we create the stillness to live into and explore the experience of the first noble truth, as we distinguish the difference between pain and suffering, as we see the components of the sensations that arise, as we gauge when we need to engage with effort or withdraw with compassion, we begin to see the nature of the other three truths. We begin to get drawn into the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering. That dukkha emerges from wanting our lives to be different than it is. So um, I can be a very sort of oppositional meditator. I want things my way. And uh, one retreat, I remembered that I just wanted the walking instructions to be different. I did not like what I heard. And I didn't like this thing about going back and forth, back and forth. It didn't make any sense to me. I wanted to go out in the woods. I wanted to enjoy the weather and the nature. And, and I struggled with this, with this, with the, with the practice that, that was offered. And so I did. I went out for a walk in the woods and um, I... Um, took in the nature and the weather and felt that I enjoyed myself. And, and what was so very frustrating was that I still wasn't happy when I returned. I still wanted things to be different. What I wanted was the wanting to go away. The power of our mindfulness practice is that we can't transform anything we're not aware of. So when that came into my consciousness, I could really look at that and just be with that. The power of awareness to support this penetration into the first noble truth cannot be understated. We simply pay attention over and over again without judging wherever we are in our practice. And we begin to actually move through the experience as opposed to around it that we've done so many times in our life. Tongpulu Sayadaw, who is one of the um, Burmese masters that came to the West to share the Dharma, says, if you know it, meaning dukkha, 
If you know it, it will break. If you do not know, it will go round and round. So bringing dukkha a little bit more home. Bell Hooks speaks in her chapter on contemplation and transformation in um, Marianne Dresser's larger anthology, The Buddhist Women, Buddhist Women on the Edge. She writes, there is a tremendous liberatory moment in my unhappy and painful childhood when I realized that I am more than my pain. When I am genuinely victimized by racism in my daily life, I want to be able to name it, to name that it hurts me, to say that I am victimized by it. Yet, it is crucial that I never see that that is all of who I am. The awareness of our experience is not being lost in the experience itself. The awareness of suffering is not being lost in the suffering itself. If you are aware of it, necessarily, you must be more than just that suffering. This was revealed to me um, um, in a very personal way around my practice. And I share this story not, not because it has elements that, um, uh, uh, of my background as a gay man, although you might be able to relate to that. And I, and I don't share it because even it has elements because I'm a person of color, although you might be able to relate to that too. I share it because as a person who suffers and experiences suffering, there's a place that those of you who suffer may be able to understand that this is not about a story of suffering. This is about a story about the ending of suffering. So, um, uh, there are about four or five of you in this room that remember me when I had very long hair. And um, I had had that sort of um, image since I was about 13. And um, so when I went to Asia to ordain, all of it had to come off. And I had been living, I don't know, for about 38 years with this, this image of who I was. And, and how I carried myself, and I had certain, you know, gestures with my hair, and <laughs> which I can't do right now. <laughs> and that's how, who I thought I was. And so I was, you know, sort of naively going through this 
it, I now know on hindsight that this ritual of purification was an intense ritual of purification, this doorway into this ancient practice. And so I was sitting down in my preliminary robes and my partner Stephen was in front of me along with a lot of the public, you know, sort of looking at. And so as, as the monk was um, beginning to shave this hair that had not been cut for so long, I had these flashes of memory of, you know, arguing with my mother about how long to keep it or at the very end when we, I went to ordination, she was trying to um, argue for me to keep the length of my hair and not cut it off. And, and all of these memories flashed back to the moment I decided to grow my hair long. And it was a memory that had been buried for those decades. I just hadn't even given it a thought. And I remember as this 13-year-old standing in front of a mirror, absolutely hating how I looked. Hating the fact that I, w I knew already that I was different, but I didn't even have words for it. That I was attracted to different people and that I didn't look like the community that I was growing up in. And I, and I was in such pain and such self-hatred and I remember the decision to begin to try to look different. And the way that I was going to do it was to grow my hair and literally hide behind it or create an image to project to the world that was different than this wounded child that was inside. And it was, you know, the razor the razor was one of these ancient sort of Gillette razors that you unscrew from the bottom and flipped out and you put the thing in. This is what my father used. And the razor had already started cutting. It's like this retreat. There's nowhere to go, right? There's nothing to do. You have to like live through it. And, and I had all of those emotions of rage, of living with this denial and self-hatred for decades not being revealed and the sadness of this boy who didn't have the skills to negotiate you know these cultural complexities of racism and homophobia and and just being with the sensations moment to moment of of the the tears and the heat and the vibration. And as I said, there was, there was no choice. It was, it was to go through this experience in ways that I could never do as that young 13-year-old. And in that going through the experience, in the penetration, was a very deep letting go. As, as your mindfulness allows you to meet the moment for what it is, things fall away. Things fall away naturally. 
so that often in our life we think of letting go as throwing away, denying or repressing. Even this is not letting go. Letting go is when your mindfulness just meets the moment for what it is with kindness. And things, the moment falls away to reveal the next moment. As suffering moves through awareness, as the awareness penetrates suffering, and as compassion simply meets the moment for what it is, we can experience the other side. This path is called the path of purification of the heart and the mind. But what comes up for purification is not our choice. It arises. And do we have the capacity to allow our mindfulness to hold it? Because sometimes this internalized dukkha can go to the core of who we think we are. And we are so much more than who we think we are. Why we get together to practice is so profound. The preciousness of this practice is not only the potential of our personal healing, but the healing, the collective healing of our communities. There will be future dukkha. There will be suffering in this life. That is the first noble truth. But they don't have to stick. They don't have to traumatize our experience. What is beyond the first noble truth? Invite your practice and your awareness to support you in penetrating and exploring what is beyond dukkha, what is the other side. And you might find a whole world a whole life, a whole universe that we simply can't imagine, but we actually have to live. As has been mentioned, that the the Dharma is holographic. You go through one teaching and you see all of the teachings. So, for example, you go through the door of dukkha. If you penetrate it, and get to the other side, you see its impermanent nature. And in that impermanence, there's a letting go. And in that letting go is that moment of kindness and gentleness of simply being with the moment for what it is. And in that kindness towards suffering, 
necessarily emerges compassion. And in the compassion for beings who suffer is the movement to end suffering. If the Dharma is holographic, so is your freedom. The doors of your liberation are open to you, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you are doing. And as we work through our own transformation and healing, we are changing our collective, historical, and generational patterns of wounding and trauma and depression. Do you believe that? Dr. Rinaldo Walcott, who's the chair of the Social Justice and Cultural Studies um, Department at the University of Toronto, puts it this way. Those who do not put their dead to rest are doomed to be haunted by the myriad of ways in which traumatic histories return. The first step, therefore, is to acknowledge historical trauma. The next step is to recognize the forms in which residual trauma haunts us. Only then can we begin to talk about resolution and healing. I'm going to end with a story that I think goes through that process for me, at least gives me an inspiration that it's possible. So in 1995, conservationists were about to close on a 10,000-acre ranch in eastern Oregon and convey it to the Bureau of Land Management. Just six weeks before the closing, the project manager, Bowen Blair, gets a call from a man by the name of Jamie Pinkham, who is, the me who is a member of the Nez Perce tribe nation. Jamie relates that this piece of property contained the cave in which their ancestral leader, Chief Joseph, was born. At the end of the last great war between the U.S. Cavalry and any Indian nation, Chief Joseph had made his famous statement, hear me, my chiefs, I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. The Nez Perce has had very little money, but had a lot of history on that piece of land. This conversation changed both men. However, that personal transformation was insufficient to heal what had occurred to an Indian nation over generations of oppression. So they started two years <clears throat> of complex negotiations 
which triggered impacts across many communities in this area. One can quickly imagine the value One can quickly imagine the value of this efforts, of these efforts to the Nez Perce people. But what did it ask of the white ranchers who had come to dominate this land since the time of the Indian Wars? For people who were forcefully removed from their land five generations ago, becoming a good neighbor required incredible acts of forgiveness and compassion. The return of the Nez Perce to their precious lands proved just as transformational for others. From that forgiveness, the largely white community of Enterprise, Oregon, felt the same lessons and started thinking and acting differently. The community became deeply divided over the appropriateness of the high school's mascot called the Savages. Armed guards were required at the school board and hearings. In the end, it was the vote of the students that prevailed and the community began to sandblast off the Indian symbol from the school walls. In June 1997, the Trust for Public Land was able to convey to the Nez Perce Nation some 10,300 acres in the heart of their ancestral homeland. It was 120 years after Chief Joseph and his people were driven from those lands. Three years later, the Nez Perce entered into a remarkable partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the Cattlemen's Association to reintroduce the wolf. And three years after that came the most amazing change of all, their ability to deal morally and practically with one of the most difficult issues of the West, the control of water. The Nez Perce joined with white ranchers and irrigators to voluntarily reduce the amount of water flowing to ranches so that salmon could be restored to the real local rivers. This was an initiative that shares the control of water and makes partners of the salmon. This is an example of those three insights from a collective motivation towards freedom. The ability for individuals and communities to face and recognize suffering. First insight. To understand it deeply. Second insight. And to walk through it, to penetrate it, and allow people from different races, different ethnicities, to feel the desire to be whole again. Whole in the largest sense of the word, as in a whole community, as in universal family. The more we can do this in our personal experience, the more we can bring it to our families, our communities, 
and a world that so desperately needs it. We practice for ourselves and for all beings. More than noble, these truths are living truths. They are only words unless they are lived through your lives, which means that you are the embodiment of the Four Noble Truths. It means that you are the embodiment of the first teaching of the Buddha, of all of his teachings, and that you are the embodiment of the Buddha's path. That is what is truly noble. And I deeply bow to your nobility. <laughs>